Welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing a Dialogue, we put comics into historical and educational contexts. Um, my segment explores theoretical and historical analyses of our topic. And I talk about our topic through the lens of pedagogy and education with a focus on practical application. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. My next graphic novel, The Breakaways, is coming up from 1st, 2nd on March 5th. That's so exciting. So you can order it at thebreakawayscomic.com. I also have a master's degree in education. Yay. Okay. So I am a PhD student at the University of Florida in the English program. Uh, My research focuses on... Um, comic studies, museum studies, trans studies, various intersections thereof. I also make self-published comics, and I just found out, so I should say this, I suppose, I will be at the the Comic Studies Society Conference in July, presenting a paper on community repair in Abo Comics. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to be doing a lot of book tour stuff. I'll be in Tucson and Brooklyn and maybe San Francisco. Don't tell anyone. Um, so, <laughs> so our topic today is girls. Yeah. So E brought this topic to my attention, and I thought it was super fantastic. One in its potential conversation with the masculinity episode that we had last episode, episode yes. eighteen. Um, however, girls could definitely embody masculinity, but I just thought it was like a fun new conversation to have after that last one. We're on like a gender theme role. Gender theme. And also it goes really well with my new book. Again, it's titled The Breakaways. It's because I was really excited for the opportunity to talk about the history of education of girls and women Mm -hmm. and the benefits of programs like Girl Scouts and the Girls Rock Camp Alliance, both of which I worked for and were like huge inspirations while I was working on The Breakaways. So I'm really excited to talk about those organizations Mm -hmm. and E, what are you going to talk about? Yeah, so I'm largely going to be talking about zines and girl zines. And for the most part, that is girl zines spelled G-R-R-R-L, like a growl. And that's sort of why I pitched this to Kathy in the first place is because uh, adjacent to a project I'm working on, I've been doing a lot of like research about zine communities. Uh, and so Riot Girl and Girl Zines are sort of like a large topic within um, talking about zine culture. So it was something I just sort of wanted to work through research wise. It's funny. I'm actually talking about the history of education. <laughs> Um, in my segment, and then E is going to be talking about girls almost as like a genre, but also inspired, like very contextual, right? Right? Yeah. Go so, for it. <laughs> so I, I think what's interesting here is that I'm looking at sort of like a very specific cultural moment, right? Yeah. So, which is to say uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and I will get into that, but I wanted to start by giving a brief explanation of what a zine is, uh, since I will be largely talking about zines. And I know that the word zine gets kind of used in a bunch of different ways nowadays. So zines, most commonly, they are thought of like they're printed on a copy machine in black and white, folded, stapled in the crease, though obviously uh, they can take really any form size-wise, color-wise, different types of binding. Yeah, I feel like the key thing is that they're self-made, right? Yeah, DIY, heavily DIY. 
So the thing about zines, right, is that uh, the ethos of zine making is that it's very emphasized, like do it yourself, DIY, very like community exchange based. You're not really trying to make money. Uh, usually they cost like postage, basically. Right. And then you get mailed a zine. The the main I'm not really going to quote much from it, but sort of the like seminal scholarly book about zines is Stephen Duncombe's Notes from the Underground, Zines and the Politics of Alternative Culture. Uh, it was originally published in 1997. The edition I have is the second edition, which came out in 2008. And the third edition just came out in 2017 from mm. Microcosm Publishing. Um, and Kathy and I talked about this a little bit before the episode, but we feel like it's worth mentioning that the, the founder, is he still like in charge of it? Yeah. And so one of the founders and the person who still is like in charge of the, uh, publisher is there, uh, was outed as an abuser, uh, a few, a while, like six years ago or so 2012 yep yeah um and so i mean i i I just feel like that's something like worth knowing so like if you pick up the book or if you like go look at anything else by microcosm because they do publish a lot of zine stuff um they publish like the zine yearbooks and things like that uh it's like worth being aware of yeah yeah and that's that's the context of that publisher yeah um yeah is that he has this history so yeah yeah it's you know always even with big publishers and everything it's always worth knowing um but anyway so this duncombe book is sort of like not the only book length study about zines that because i have another one i want to read but like there's about like sort of like laying out just like just the history and sort of cultural impact of zines broadly at all right Mm-hmm. So his uh, explanation of a zine is long. And I'm not going to read all of it because that's basically what I just said about <laughs> DIY and community and exchange. But I did want to mention that. And I am going to read to sort of orient us into specifically what I'm going to be talking about is the Riot Girl movement uh, and then girl zines sort of coming out of Riot Girl. So a lot of what I'm going to be doing this episode is sort of talking about different created histories of genre because I find that really interesting uh, so if you'll forgive me mm-hmm. but you know Duncombe does talk about Riot Girl and his his sort of entry to the Riot Girl chapter is um so I'm quoting in a 1983 issue of Maximum Rock and Roll which was a very long like broadly subscribed to zine that was like a punk zine, right? So the other thing about zine culture in this time is that it comes out of like punk subculture, like punk music. Um, and that's sort of part of the DIY ethos and everything. So in a 1983 issue of Maximum Rock and Roll, while men were busy defining punk in the letters section, a group of women published the results of an informal poll surveying the feelings of women in punk. Less than a decade later, in Olympia, Washington, Riot Girl was founded, bringing together the radical critique of patriarchy and desire for female community of past feminist movements and the in-your-face rebellious individualism of punk rock. Riot Girl was a network of young women linked by zines, bands, and their anger, dedicated to putting the punk back into feminism and feminism back into punk. Um, yeah. Oh, nothing. I just wanted to shout out Maximum Rock and Roll. March is their last edition of the print <gasps> yeah! version. Yeah, isn't Maximum that wild? So RIP, lots of love. <laughs> They're yeah. still doing the podcast and the radio show and like online reviews and stuff. 
but they finally let go of the print edition. Wow, what a moment. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's this month, yeah. Right? So that's his like very baseline introduction to the founding of Riot Girl, but he does qualify that by saying, um, founded is perhaps not the best term for while there are or were Riot Girl chapters in a number of cities and hundreds of zines produced by women who identified themselves as Riot Girls, Riot Girl had no founding convention, no structure, and little formal organization outside of local meetings and zine exchanges. So this is an idea I'm going to come back to, and the reason why I pitched this as like girl zines and not specifically Riot Girl is that there are a lot of zines made by women who sort of fall into this genre of girl, G-R-R-L, who don't necessarily align with Riot Girl and weren't involved in Riot Girl. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's worth like noting those sort of, that it's sort of shifting and ambiguous and hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. The basic chronology, right, is that in 1988, Toby Vale of Olympia, Washington makes a zine called Jigsaw. Jigsaw gets read by a a woman named Kathleen Hanna, uh, who writes to Vale and basically asks her to collaborate. They go on to start a band called Bikini Kill in Olympia. Um, At the same time, a zine called Riot Girl, like, gets made by Molly Newman and... Allison Wolf also makes a zine called Girl Germs. And Allison Wolf and Molly Newman go on, or like around the same time, basically start the band Bratmobile. So this is like four specific women who were making zines that start these punk bands in Olympia uh, that sort of get put down as like, this is the founding of what would become the cohesive riot girl movement. And I do also think, like, as always in qualifying these things, um, Kathleen Hanna gets, there's a lot to, like, pay attention to with her. Um, she performs at the uh, the Mitch Fest Festival, the, where it's, uh, <laughs> it's women identified women, quote, so, like, W-O-M-Y-N, and there's the, a lot of controversy around Mitch Fest and the specific exclusion of trans women from being able to participate in it. Um, so Hannah gets criticized for that. Later, she also, like, interviews and says that, like, she doesn't believe in trans-exclusionary feminism. And so and it's complicated, but I feel like it's worth noting that there are these, like, while this is all happening, there are sort of these moments of um, transphobia and racism and things that are, like, also coexisting within this time, right? Mm-hmm. Just because I know, like, for a lot of trans people, the name Kathleen Hannah has a lot of baggage. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, Mitch Fest has is a bunch of TERFs. Yes, sucks. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, anyway, so that's sort of those four women are sort of the ones who are sort of seen as like the founders, the ones that conceptualize the movement. So the way that Duncombe sort of puts this history of zines together with Riot Girl, Riot Girl gets seen as sort of like it's part of the broader zine movement. But it's like this is a genre of of zines that's all girls. Isn't that kind of weird? Right. Like it's sort of seen as an aberration. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Duncombe's, and part of this is because of the way that zine, the history of zines gets talked about. So Duncombe says um, that zines are the most recent entry in a long line of media for the misbegotten, a tradition stretching back to Thomas Paine and other radical pamphleteers up through the underground press of the 1960s and on towards the internet. Um, so this is sort of the general canonical history of zines. People sort of place them in this history of like radical pamphlets 
then sort of punk subculture, underground press zines. Yeah, I mean, that that sort of makes sense because it has a lot to do with like connecting it to like radical pamphlets and yes. stuff because it's the, the ability to publish anything, right? Yeah. The ability to publish without editors, without oversight, without people telling you to censor certain things it's just the ability to just say anything so yeah exactly um so now i'm going to bring in sort of the main book source that i worked with for this which is allison pipemeyer's girl zines making media doing feminism which was published in 2009 so what is that 12 years after duncombe's book a year after the second edition of duncombe's book right mm. so Pipemeyer's book is really interesting because she's actually less interested in creating sort of a chronology of zines, of girl zines specifically, right? Because she she's talking about zines by women specifically and more interested in creating sort of a theory of girl zines and like looking at sort of the theoretical implications. But she challenges Duncombe and sort of the established history of zines. So, quote, most studies of zines identified them as resistant media originating in male-dominated spaces. They are positioned as descendants of the pamphlets of the American Revolution and Dadaist and Samizat publishing, uh, emerging from the fanzines of the 1930s and the punk community of the 1970s. According to this narrative, the zine proliferation was triggered by the convergence of punk culture and technology. So this idea that, like, you could make anything really, you could write, write anything and then print it really cheap on a copy machine like it was it became easier and more accessible to gain access to a copy machine through like mm. working in an office or going to a library right mm -hmm. um so that's sort of the lineages pipemeyer calls this insufficient when discussing girl zines specifically um although zines are often described as though they and their predecessors have always been male-dominated media what hasn't been discussed is the fact that these publications also have predecessors in the informal publications documents and artifacts produced by women during the first and second waves of feminism so she writes and i actually i like this line a lot and this is sort of like what mm. my theme is through the whole thing Origin stories are important because they tell us where to look and what patterns to watch for. In the case of girl zines, if we think of them as originating from the male-dominated spaces of zines and punk culture, then girl zines appear aberrations at best. They're not quite the same as zines produced by men, but this difference isn't taken seriously. So her argument is that it's not just this lineage of, like, revolutionary pamphlets of, like, Dada is publishing and sort of these other forms of, like, radical publishing. It's also, like, what women in the first and second waves of feminism were doing, which were scrapbooks. Mm health booklets and um, mimeograph pamphlets. So their own forms of like radical publishing that were disseminated amongst communities of women prior to this movement. Um, and I think that is like an interesting point to dwell on because it relates back to what we were just talking about in episode 18 about like masculine as a social relationship. Right. And sort of like the mm -hmm. ways that like zines and punk spaces are like sort of positioned as masculine spaces and there is like a masculine sort of social role working within them but like there are these challenging or like difficult to pin down or like alternate lineages that are also happening that are also mm -hmm. 
what these women are drawing from. Mm-hmm. So Pipemeyer notes that girlzines are, quote, deeply and thoroughly implicated in the scholarly and cultural concept of the third wave of feminism. Um, the third wave is a term that loosely defines a generational and political cohort born after the heyday of the second wave women's movement. So she talks about this. And in general, there's some contention about this idea of first wave, second wave, third wave feminism, because it can sort of um, dramatize generational differences or mm. sort of reduce differences that aren't generational, like race and class and sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, a lot of the issues that were, like, being dealt with in the second wave didn't just get magically solved and now we're on to the third wave, right? Right, um, right. But it is, I th- like, she argues that it's important because there is nonetheless sort of these shared characteristics amongst women who sort of came into being in the 80s and 90s, right? Like, there's, like, some generational things. And it's also a useful chronology marker for us because again i'm pulling on this very specific 88 to like the aughts right like right so this is like a specific moment in time riot girl is identified sort of as the start of a genre of girl zines but it's not necessarily the same thing like i said earlier not all girls that were making zines were also participants in riot girl or feminism uh, particularly pipemeyer notes that many of the girl zinesters i interviewed explained that they began making zines either as a response to sexism or because they were inspired by another girl zine although some of these women were part of the punk zine community all began creating uh, zines because of some specifically gender-related catalyst. So this is what she uses as like the defining mm. of the genre is that it's... Interesting. Yeah, so it's girls that, you know, either as a response to sexism that they personally experienced or because they bought or participated in these zine communities and were exposed to already existing girl zines, they started to make their own. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're talking about any sort of zine history those networks are really really important to pay attention to because when we when we're like considering these sort of alternate underground subcultures of publishing and creation and participatory media it's never going to be like a clean cut like oh they came up and they read a bunch of feminist theory from the second wave and then they started doing stuff right like it's always going to be these sort of difficult shifting people just knew people and emailed and exchanged zines in physical locations and like <laughs> They did a lot of, you did a lot of mailing. Yeah. You traded yeah, yeah, yeah. mails and you had P.O. boxes on the back yep. so you could m- send letters to other people. Yeah. yeah. So like these networks are ephemeral is what I'm getting at. Right. And so it's harder to trace them, but it's really, really key to understanding how these communities formed. So girl zines to sort of generalize the genre. Right. So girl zines typically deal with things like body image, um, sexism, sexual assault, and sort of the constructions of girl and women as identity. And I am not going to go too, too deep into Pipemeyer's whole uh, theory and, like, the way she, like, reads the semiotics of zines. I do think it's interesting. So if you're interested, I would, like, pick it up. Mm. But I do want to read this quote. The zine, then, is a medium that captures flux, contradiction, and fragmentation and uses these things not as problems to be resolved, but as a source of creative energy. It is a space for experimentation and play. So gender, then, becomes an important side of this fragmentation because it is such a highly charged category. Certain identity configurations, 
the fat chick, the sexy girl, the welfare mother, are particularly loaded with cultural meanings, many of which are unfriendly at best and dangerous at worst. Zines function as a space where girls and women can intervene in the set of myths not to create a monolithic counterimage, but to destabilize the familiar cultural narratives and imagery to borrow some of their power and use it to open up space for different kinds of female subject positions. So this idea, and uh, she's like sort of specifically giving this a gendered lens, which I think is really important too. But like the thing about zines is that largely they are made through people handwriting things, cutting and pasting in images, cutting and pasting in articles or other writings. Often there are, like zines and I'm actually going to talk about this but there are zines where people take from other zines and then kind of combine them into one zine uh, often Mm -hmm. without citing or sourcing Um, and so like it it is like by its nature incredibly fragmentary like an incredibly fragmented way of constructing a physical object right this like that's Mm -hmm. like the basis of cut and paste so because of that there is space for zines to generate unfinished subjectivity, so to speak. Like, if you recall in the um, episode where I talked about trans-autobio, part of what made trans-autobio so cohesive is that people were retrospectively constructing a specific narrative that allowed them to more or less exist, like, to be known, correct? Mm -hmm. So in this medium, what's really happening is that instead of people trying to construct something cohesive, like, looking back, it's more like this ongoing experimental playful collaging of identity which makes it so like if you ever read a zine like you can clearly see that it's like because of the nature of the thing there's more potentiality for like disruptions and unsettlings um of the self which is i think powerful for marginalized people right yeah and i think i think it very much is embodying like the ideas of punk yes like creating yourself and like having it be intrusive. Yeah. 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 Right. Cause it's also like all of this tends to take like a very anti-capitalist bent. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Cause you're making it yourself. You aren't citing. Yes. You're take, you're creating yourself outside of other people's expectations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's sort of like the very short, like, here's what zines are. Here's how zines get used. Here's like a very brief, uh, the canonical sort of accepted history of, of Riot Girl and Girl zines, right? So now I want to switch us to this um, Janice Radway article, uh, Girl Zine Networks, Underground Itineraries, and Riot Girl History, Making Sense of the Struggle for New Social Forms in the 1990s and Beyond, which is actually from 2016, so pretty recent. And it's in the Journal of American Studies, which I know we don't, like, I don't usually, I'm highlighting a lot of publishers this time, but I wanted to highlight that because, like, <laughs> Journal of American Studies, so this is a, American Studies is like this big, broad field, so Radway and sort of publishing this here is giving us sort of legitimacy, right, to the girl zines, basically. And Radway is a scholar that there's like certain names that pop up a lot when you're looking at girl zines, and she's like one of the main ones. <laughs> um, mm. So what she does in this article, which I think is really interesting, and I'm not going to read all of my quotes from it for time's sake, but she, in addition to sort of chasing out the like accepted history of girl zines or Riot Girl, she specifically traces the history of academia surrounding it cool. to talk about how it gets sort of canonized. So mm-hmm. as early as 1994, in fact, Joanne Gottlieb and Gail Wald, then Princeton graduate students active in local punk scenes, 
published one of the first academic articles about Riot Girl in the collection Microphone Fiends, edited by Andrew Ross and Tricia Rose, entitled, quote, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Riot Girl's Revolution and Women in Independent Rock. The article marshaled careful arguments suggesting that Riot Girl, the name refers to the movement at large, has forged salient connections between musical subculture and explicitly feminist politics. Yeah, so that title, uh, Kathleen Hanna was good friends with Kurt Cobain. Yeah, and she so, came up with yeah. she came up with that phrase, <laughs> which is she's that. There's a very cute. We'll link. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. It's very cute. She she talks about that story on stage. Yeah, and she sings. It's super cute. <laughs> so it's interesting. I'll link it. I love that video. I watch it. Like, no, yearly, it's it's a very it. cute story. So like I'm into that. Yeah. So then in 1999, Radway talks about Kristen Schilt, who would later um, quote add significantly to the corpus of early academic articles about the meaning and significance of Riot Girl. So in 1999, as Kristen Schilt was writing her thesis on Riot Girl. One of the first full-length books to treat the relationships between girls and punk was published by Rutgers University Press, testifying even more resolutely to the fact that within a very short time, some girl punks, as well as Riot Girls, had moved from clubs, alternative bookstores, and info shops into the precincts of legitimate culture, carrying their mixtapes and zines in messenger bags and backpacks as they traversed the space between the underground and academia. So she's mapping the specific move within academia where women who came up through the punk scene and came up through Riot Girl, they go to school <laughs> and they <laughs> and they write articles and dissertations about Riot Girl. And in doing that, because they are bringing this insider knowledge, um, like so she says specifically, like Schilt, Lorraine LeBlanc, the author of Pretty in Punk, Girls, Gender Resistance, and a Boy's Subculture, describes herself as a former punk and drew on her insider's knowledge of the scene to underwrite her interviews with Girls Punks, uh, conducted from 1993 to 1995. Um, so they come in, they bring this insider knowledge, and they start writing academically about this. And so, like, very quickly, um, the academic history and narrative become shaped which further sort of uh this constructed like the history of um kathleen hannah and toby vale and washington dc and olympia washington the two like key locations sort of becomes entrenched within academia because there is actually um as far as zines zines go riot girl is pretty studied right it's one of the few subculture-y things that gets written about um, more frequently than some of the other things we've talked about in the show. Uh, LeBlanc's, in particular, LeBlanc's account was important for the way it legitimized and explained the oft-noted tendency amongst Riot Girls to recode the markers of girly femininity and to attempt to renew feminism for the 90s by refusing what they saw as feminism's puritanism and anti-femi stance. Um... Oh, I was going to say, I actually find it very interesting how, like, you're examining the canonization of this movement that's at its heart of rebellion. Right? Yeah, isn't it interesting? I mean, it's it's a little sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I almost didn't, I was almost, like, unsure about whether to include this because I didn't know if it would be too off topic. But uh, Radway just is so smart about the way that she kind of 
identifies how I don't think I have this even pulled, but she talks about specifically how like Hannah and some of the other women who are like major players like donated their zines to zine archives. And it was like a big deal because it meant that they were being preserved. Like there's like a a very deliberate kind of construction that gets that happens. Mm. So, yeah, she says, um, quote, in the end, what enabled Riot Girl to emerge as a public form of feminist social movement was the active articulation or linking of a set of actions by an initially inchoate group of young musicians and zine makers with the actions of others from those of their mothers in the past to those that engage with them contemporaneously by collecting their music and their zines to those who later commented on and analyzed both in context that foregrounded gender issues as these discursive and social connections were forged others were drawn not only into the circle of riot girl but also into the broader universe of the woman's movement and feminist thoughts this can be seen clearly in the last step of this process at least as i have narrated it here when girl zines were identified as such that is as girl zines and gathered together in collections already organized by gender and archives designed to enable the documentation and analysis of the lives of women and girls Such collections had initially been created because earlier feminists had noticed the absence of women's material in collections focused largely on the political, military, and cultural exploits of men. So this genre of girl zines becomes a canonized genre intentionally because of participants in it deliberately choosing to archive it in that way, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Radway moves into some critiques of this, and I'm going to use that to move us into another um, participant in Riot Girl who later turns academic. Uh, Quote from Radway, Despite the political value of remembering Riot Girl as a feminist intervention, I want to point out that certain lacunae embedded in this familiar story rest uneasily with within it and from different perspectives appear as something other than unremarkable background context and lacunae if you aren't sure like i wasn't basically means gaps like an unfilled space as in an unfilled space Mm. in scholarship or in history or whatever Mm -hmm. these include brief references to the la punk scene to lesbian and queer identified zines like sister outsider and chainsaw to the appearance of queer core bands at girl nights and to a shared interest in mainstream popular culture it's not possible to elaborate on the significance of all these lacunae uh in the content like in the space of her article but i do want to take up what is perhaps the most significant unincorporated detail in the riot girl narrative i have repeated that is the fact that riot girl emerged from within the punk music scene a scene that though not uniformly white, was plagued from the beginning by complicated racial politics and outright racism. And I do want to be fair here and point out that Pipemeyer also talks about race uh, and like sort of the issues with like uh, Riot Girl's sort of inherent racism in her book as well. I just didn't have time to go into all of it, right? Mm -hmm. So both of them to talk about this site zines by uh, Mimi Tai Nguyen, who did the zine Slant, later renamed Slander, and um, Aim Your Dick, um, and also compiled the zine Evolution of a Race Riot, which I'm going to talk about in more detail. Radway also cites Nguyen's academic articles on Riot Girl, uh, particularly her 2012 essay, um, Riot Girl Race and Revival, which I will read from in a little bit. 
Nguyen's insistence on the co-presence of alternate scenes within the underground world of punk and the different genealogies that produced them is a consequential argument for many reasons, but especially because it helps make sense of notable and troubling feature of nearly all archives and collection of girl zines. That is, the extraordinary diversity of interests and attachments represented in them and the divergent networks of citation, circulation, and friendship that course through them. Such diversity is troubling in part because it suggests that defining zines created by girls as girl zines or riot girl zines or as feminist zines potentially ignores or backgrounds a whole range of other commitments and preoccupations represented within those collections with just as much energy as feminist critique. By leaving out whole chunks of underground history as revealed in those zines, such narratives potentially reinscribe familiar privileges of gender, sexuality, race, and class, and deny the significance of multiple, contentious, changing forms of dissent in the 1990s. Snaps. I was going to snap when I said that, but I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. 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 Basically, right, that if we, if the, the issue with making girl zines a genre is that a lot of the women that were making zines were also not white, were also queer, were also disabled, were also intersecting with other issues that they were also like working in these genealogies of other issues, right? Um, by creating this narrative, you do end up losing some of that. Um, so now I do want to take a look at Mimi Tai uh, Noyan's article, Riot Girl Race and Revival, which was written in 2012. Um, so also not that long ago. And it was published in Women in Performance, a Journal of Feminist Theory. So she begins this article by sort of analyzing the, quote, well-known historiography of Riot Girl. I'm not going to go too deep into that because I've already laid it out, right? Mm -hmm. But I do want to read this quote. Um, she talks a lot about one of the things about zines and specifically Riot Girl zines that gets talked about a lot is their intimacy and sort of intimacy as a uh, particular tool of the zines, like a generated intimacy between the zinester and the reader, which sort of comes along with them being sort of handmade personal objects, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, quote, this subculture of intimacy and self-referentiality borrowed its structure for transformation from consciousness raising and the notion that the deeply oppressed had radical knowledge stemming from their specific social positions. That is, from inside the oppressed classes themselves comes political knowledges based on experience, which might then be translated into expertise. But the turn to self-referentiality as an escape from falsehood and the capacity to retrieve instead reality had some obvious limits. For example, women of color wondered out loud for whom writing slut across their stomachs operated as reclamations of sexual agency against feminine passivity, where racisms had already inscribed such terms onto some bodies, and poor or criminal class women argued that feminists slumming in the sex industry through stripping for the most part as a confrontational act implied that other women in this or other tiers of the industry were otherwise conceding to patriarchy. Or, as Mary Celeste Kearney observes, quote, the gender deviance displayed by riot girls is a privilege to which only middle class white girls have access. So really sort of getting at this idea of the ways in which 
using marginalized positions for power when you are otherwise a privileged person is not necessarily actually getting to anything, right? Is not necessarily radical. Yeah, I'm I f- I'm feeling conflicted because um I mean, I know that like Kathleen Hanna worked as a stripper in a strip club. Yeah. Um when she talks about in the video that we'll link, but I don't know if I necessarily I mean, it's not as though sex workers are s- super respected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm just feeling conflicted. But I do and about that sense, um but I do I do see like the choice to wear clothes from a thrift store as like a statement rather than a necessity and things like that. I can see um, the argument that Nguyen is making. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there are levels to all of this sort of thing. Yeah. But uh, Nguyen does talk a lot about sort of the the kumbaya language <laughs> that a lot of white zinesters use. Yeah, and I think, and, and I actually will run into this too, sort of the nature of saying women right. and girls, mostly usually from a white point of view and a sort of assuming that being a woman is sort of a marginalized group and therefore you, a white woman, is just as marginalized as other people who might have more identity intersection as in marginalized ways. That's definitely something that I get in my um, resources as well. So Noyan sort of moves into like a broader critique about how race is treated in Riot Girl. Uh, so, quote, Riot Girl drew from liberal formulas that defined racism as ignorance and ignorance as the absence of intimacy. In the words of a zine I have admittedly long discarded, quote, racism is a lack of love. And then and parentheticals. We also know this in the familiar disavowal. I'm not racist. I have black friends, which suggests that proximity is a social prophylactic against virulent racism. In the name of a transformative love, white girls and some boys confess to failures of social bonds admitting a lack of non-white friends was popular and proposed solutions through which racism might overcome through experiences that would then yield intimate knowledge of the other. So what she's really getting at here is sort of this construct of the other as like uh, largely like white punks sort of using the specter of non-white people as sort of a way to define their own liberalness. Mm-hmm. So like, quote, thus does the, this loving and here white subject instrumentalize his or her social transactions in the terms of the rules of an economy assigning value to intimate experiences with racial colonial others collected for the express purpose of gaining value, which ground his or her claims to knowledge as property as self-possession. And she talks a lot about specific like zines where like a white woman would be like, I want to make a zine about racism. So everyone submit your writings about racism to me and sort of like that sort of liberal type language. Mm -hmm. So what she's sort of getting at through this, though, is that for her, there's not a clean legacy of like the uh, punk culture and then like Bikini Kill and Bratmobile stuff and then like Riot Girl happened and stuff happened within Riot Girl and then it was solved and done and everyone moved on. 
she like she's talking a lot about how retrospectives are written basically Mm -hmm. so quote this is one subterranean story of a particular moment or movement which is not widely told about uh, riot girl and its resonance it is a story about the violence of girl girl intimacy the force of smothering love the menace of liberal subjecthood but it is also important to observe that people of color made significant connections outside of these conversations writing or singing about language loss and acquisition the ghosts of empire mixed race identifications, migration histories because of war or the demands of capital, the pitfalls of nonprofit organizing, queer of color critique, black girl travel stories, and much more. So do I worry that Riot Girl Retrospectives will take the form of a story of the loss of a more utopian moment of feminist intimacy and to which race is either a disruption generating bad feelings or an intervention feeling bad to assure that we are good and otherwise contained as such. So like I said, again, this is sort of like annoyance call for like when we treat sort of this histiography of Riot Girl, it's not Riot Girl was its own thing. And then within Riot Girl, some women of color were like, hey, don't be racist. And it was like everyone had their like coming to Jesus moment and then everyone was felt better and moved on. (laughs) Right. It's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So quote, and this is echoing sort of that origin stories matter line from earlier. These questions matter as a story about how feminisms are narrated through rubrics of community antagonism, big picture and episode here. As I argue for displacing the given history of Riot Girl for another yet untold that understands this movement instead through the continuing presence of problematic investments in progressive time or possessive selfhood, I'm reminded of Sarah Ahmed, who conjured that frightening figure of the feminist killjoy who often appears to us in the form of the angry woman of color who refuses to move on from either institutional or epistemic violence, even after the tearful apologies and soul-searching late nights. In being named a killjoy, Ahmed observes, the violence the women of color names is displaced into the past, and her continued insistence that violence intrudes upon the present is understood to be untimely, in thus naming her a killjoy, this allochronic gesture insists that time's passage makes increasingly tenuous the causal temporality of the violence she narrates as steer with us still. Thus, her refusal to move on is named a source of unreasonable violence, a binge of pain and pain, given a crisis of proportion and duration through which she is subsequently accused of disrupting feminist futures. After all, an ateliology in which the intervention is understood as timely, but also temporary to claim that we continue to exist in a state of emergency is to insist that feminisms cannot hope to remain self-identical or the same, but better after eruption. So kind of her summary, basically, of like this clean narrative of the history of Riot Girl doesn't account for the gaps that Radway was also talking about. And what Noyan ultimately wants is for retrospectives to grapple with and acknowledge that these things are ongoing conversations that coalesced in this moment, but were not conscripted by it and did not stop with it. Mm. Uh, What I wanted to do now is sort of shout out a couple of online zine articles. I am fortunate enough to live in a city that has like the oldest zine library in the Southeast. Um, Shoutouts to the Travis Fristo zine archive that was founded in 94. And there are a lot of zine archives around the country, but obviously not everyone can access those. So I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, QZAP, the Queer Zine Archive Project, uh, who, in addition to having a physical location, you can go to uh, have digital scans of their collection online that you can look at. 
the POC zine project, which is a, a digital archive of zines by people of color. Um, the digital transgender zine archive, which sort of aggregates where you can find digital archives of zines by trans people and the zine wiki, which does not necessarily have like archived images, um, but is like a wiki that has a lot of zine history sort of preserved on it by zinesters. So I'll put those in our description. Um, but this, so I wanted to talk about Evolution of a Race Riot, which is the Noyan zine that I mentioned earlier. So Evolution of a Race Riot was two compilation zines. So what Noyan would do is she would uh, get writings by other people of color during this time and put them together. And it, a lot of it pushed back against sort of the whiteness of Riot Girl and the whiteness of punk. And I'm not going to go too deeply into it because they're very long. <laughs> they're very big scenes. But I, yeah. I wanted to read Noyan's intro from the first one. So she starts it out with um, why this exists I'm flipping through a zine and I read an ad by a white woman calling for submissions from white women and women of color for a compilation she wants to put together about racism. And she's calling it Sister We Are One or something equally homogenizing, something to deflect conflict and differences across race and class and geography, something to domesticate the threat posed by women of color saying, but you are not like me and you are not the center of the universe, feminist or otherwise. The race riot has lagged years behind the girl one for reasons that should be obvious by now. White boy mentality became a legitimate target, but white girls' racial privilege and discourse went unmarked, except among those of us who are never white, like me. It's a, so punk rocked high on the Richter scale when Kathleen Hanna screamed, just die, but can a race riot get, and then two dashes and a question mark. Um... Zines are full of empty liberal platitudes like racism is a lack of love. We're one race, the human race. I'm colorblind and we are supposed to be satisfied with these and maybe the occasional confession of personal racism. Uh, quote, I was beat up once by black girls or I'm afraid of people of color. Um, Whoop-de-doo. This does shit for me. How about you? Even worse, some white riot types have decided to appropriate the language of racial oppression to include themselves as non-white or at least oppressed as populations of color. This includes anything from comparing racism to blue hair discrimination, to emphasizing the immigrant tales of the European ethnic forefathers and mothers to echo a defensive Me Too, to insisting that a vague, possibly non-white ancestor makes one black and enables one to speak for and as, quote, all African people. So obviously... She is calling out specific zines within this, mm -hmm. but also sort of like broadly addressing like the things that she and other people of color have observed happening in these genres. Uh, and so these zines were meant to be a critique of that by bringing together non-white people's writings from different zines from their own zines. So again, this is sort of what I talked about, how collaborations of writing and stuff are like a zinester going and taking things from previously existing zines and then putting them in their own zines. So in this one, she she has like a little table of contents with each person in it and then like from what zine it is so this is actually an interesting archival document because it's also a collection of writing from a whole bunch of other zines yeah. that might be hard to find so i think that's a really interesting one to think about and then the other zine i wanted to talk about i picked it not because i think it is necessarily like critical <laughs> as a zine but because it's available mm. it's on the qzap zine archive so it is available documented online and i think it's a really good solid example of what like a quote typical kind of girl zine would be so it's called femi skunk number one and it's from 1996 by eve tushnet and you can see it on q's app like i said so it'll be linked in our show notes and it's like 
it does everything that typical zine does in terms of collage. So the cover is an image of a cookie monster sort of drawn it as the Mona Lisa that says visit the Museum of Monster Art that the zinester either drew herself or more likely got from some sort of like Sesame Street children's book type thing. Pasted over that. She's put in Salome's sister. Salome's sister is the name of the first issue of uh, Femi Skunk. So her intro says... Welcome to Salome's sister, the first issue of the Femi Skunk. It aspires to be a quesadilla, thick gobs of greasy cheese, slices of onion, string circles of jalapeno pepper, all wrapped in one tortilla. Probably the biggest thing in this issue is going to be the thing about school slash kid power slash complications. And then a bunch of stuff is scribbled out. And then there's also stuff about impurity and craziness and schoolgirl sexuality. Um, And then she lists some of the other zines she does, some of her friend zines. Pro- provides a P.O. box in Washington, D.C. for people to email. I keep saying email to mail her, to physically mail her thing. <laughs> um, other zines she finds inspiring. Um, the first thing is like a writing that's something she did in 1995 collaged on so like a lot of zines were like compilations of short stories people had written poetry comics uh reviews of other zines reviews of books reviews of music especially so on and so forth so i think this is just like a good example of like if someone was gonna say like what would be a prototypical girl zine i could hand you salome sister (laughs) and i think it would kind Mm. of get at a lot of the things that we've been talking about And it's from D.C., which was actually one of the main physical locations for Riot Girl. So that is what I have. It's interesting that you pronounce femme as femme. Oh, is it femme? Never heard that before. It's femme. It's femme, yeah. I always, in my, so if I see just F-E-M, I say femme. But if I see it spelled the French way, my brain automatically makes it femme. Yeah, no. Okay, well, I'm not going to re-say all of that. So everyone's just going to have to know that I mispronounce (laughs) things. I didn't want to interrupt you because, you know, you you do you, man. (laughs) I mean, I think anyone who has listened to any episode of this podcast knows that I pronounce things wrong. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much, E. So now we're on to my segment where I talk about our topic in an educational and pedagogical context. So what I wanted to do was to sort of talk about just the history of gender segregated education in North America. Yeah, It's something I sort of, I slightly touched upon in our transgender episode where we talked about trans memoir and uh, the school climate for trans students and about how having sort of the binary genders of boys and girls can often make uh, transgender students um, have a harder time finding their place in schools. And so I wanted to go more into that, more into where that came from and what the history was. Um, So my main source is a book titled Historical Dictionary of Women's Education in the United States. The author is Linda Eisenman. It was published in 1998. This book seems focused on white women, and it includes black women and mentions the education of Native American children. Okay. I personally believe that the word women can encompass women of different immigration statuses, ethnicities, and race, because we're talking about Mm -hmm. North America, right? Yeah. But I also believe that it's often uh, mostly referring to white women in the context of this book. 
and in North American history, mm-hmm. as white women are the ones who garnered most of the opportunities of early pushes for gender equality. I think we mentioned it during E's segment as well, this sort of idea of a women as a marginalized category, which sort of leaves women of color and intersectionality behind. Right, yeah. So I feel like this book from 1998 sort of suffers from that. I just wish it would acknowledge when it's talking about white women and when it's talking about like women who aren't being oppressed in other ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and also I believe the author is white. I looked up a picture of her. She seems cool. I don't want to judge her, but. <laughs> okay. Um... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you said it's from, you said it's from the 90s, right? Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think I think that was just sort of the vibe. Yeah, that's like that was sort of the cultural thing in the 90s, right? Of sort of like we are all one style. And honestly, that overlaps with the time period of Riot Girl too, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And honestly, I and and, and I think my hesitation is coming from cuz that is that was the conversation for who? White women. Right. I don't yes. know. If- <laughs> so it's not that women of color haven't been asking <laughs> other people to acknowledge intersections. Um, but so I added to this. So this book by Eisenman, um, Historical Dictionary of mm-hmm. Women's Education in the United States. I also pulled more sources to sort of build upon this main source, mainly Wikipedia and a couple journal articles, just to sort of build the conversation around topics that I felt like needed a little bit more. Right. And also something that I think we haven't actually talked about this outright, but it's something that I just felt like I wanted to talk about. Um, I tried to edit out and avoid using outdated terms for people of color, but I think there is one instance of the name of a racist organization created for the oppression of Native American people that I left intact but I'll be using the acronym after I say it for the first time. Okay. It's something that we've run into repeatedly when we're talking about the history of North America. And I just want listeners to be aware that we are always trying to do what we can to edit out and sort of avoid these terms that are outdated. I don't mean like racist slurs, but I just mean these outdated terms for groups of people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That are like often used in the titles of articles or in the names of organizations, things like that. Um, mm mm-hmm. And especially as white people, because me and E are both white. But sometimes, uh, such as this instance, I also found it kind of important to name the organization responsible for the repeated violence. Right. Yeah, so that's the choice I made, but I'm happy to hear other people's thoughts on it. As always, drawing a dialogue is a dialogue, so... And on a lighter note, I'm actually very, very excited to be talking about historically black colleges and universities. Yeah. The history of who built our institutions and the values that they were founded upon often affect our outlooks from those institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like really interested in the historical context and ways to understand our higher education institutions. So like historically black colleges and universities hasn't been something that we've talked about yet, but I think it's like really interesting and important to start to think about these histories about where our universities come from and what kind Mm -hmm. of histories they are either trying to bury or re-uncover. And I just got, it just got published out in the beginning of February. I just got a book titled Slavery and the University, Histories and Legacies. It was edited by Leslie M. Harris, uh, James T. Campbell, and Alfred L. Brophy. So this is like work that's like very, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say new, but it's starting to get more published and more attention. So I'm really excited about that. 
Yeah. Just thinking about our histories of our institutions. So now I'm going to get into my timeline. So thank you. That was my long intro. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, I structured this as a timeline. So the timeline of women's educational history in the United States. Okay. Um, So I'm going to go by dates. Or did you have any comments for my introduction? Or Well, I mean, I always have thoughts on the history. I mean, it's what I said in my my section, right? Origin stories matter. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So in 1675, the literacy rate in New England, based on ability to sign documents, is approximately mm-hmm. 45% for women, 70% for men. A little formal schooling exists. Okay. So that's 1675. In the 1770s, to 1800, the ideology of Republican motherhood urges education for women to better prepare their sons as informed citizens. Okay. So, yeah. So this is actually a lot of the sort of early gender equality for education was sort of around the idea of motherhood and preparing sons, right? So you need to have an educated mother to have an educated son Mm. who is the one that matters, right? Okay. So in 1790, Judith Sargent Murray publishes the essay on the equality of sexes, arguing that women are men's intellectual equals and deserving of educational opportunity. So I have a little bit more about Judith Sargent Murray um, from womenshistory.org. Okay. Um, <laughs> a staunch believer in improved educational opportunities for women, Murray's essays were vital to the post-revolutionary notion of Republican motherhood. Advocates, notably Abigail Adams and Murray, argued that the success of the new nation required intelligent and virtuous citizens. And since the education of patriotic sons, who are the future voters, because women don't have the right to vote, right, rested with mothers, women should be educated. Murray's essays challenged prevailing notions that the female brain was inherently inferior. She argued instead that women were stifled not by physical limitations, but by lack of access to education. So that's 1790. Also in 1790, New England's women's literacy advances to approximately 80%, closing mm. the gender gap. Yeah, this is interesting. The time period that like 17, 1800s time period is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about, uh, I talked about a little bit in the episode on when we talked about critical prison studies in the school to prison pipeline mm-hmm. there's a book by jody shorb called reading prisoners literature legacy and the transformation of american punishment from 1700 to 1845 mm-hmm. that talks a lot about early education in this area specifically through the lens of like uh jailhouse literacy and like which racial groups were like allowed literacy and things like that um mm-hmm. so that's like it is like a really interesting uh time period yeah and that's that's honestly that's the kind of gaps that i found in this source mm-hmm. was that it said women without a lot of analysis on what race of women that she's really talking about yeah and like i guess i'm just being a critical reader you know like i do feel like she it wasn't just affecting white women so i just wanted to be open to the fact that i feel like there's some gaps in this source 
Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So in 1792, Sarah Pierce opens the Litchfield Female Academy in Connecticut, one of the earliest women's schools. Okay. Women's academies and seminaries will open from now throughout the mid-19th century. And then it's also talking about Republican motherhood. And I sort of looked up Litchfield Female Academy and the Wikipedia article for it said they had a wide range of students from high to middle classes from the United States, Canada, and the West Indies. Okay. So this is sort of my longer quote, and it's about the North American history of the quote-unquote education of Native Americans, and it's sort of, it's Mm -hmm. the federal government division that I was referring to in the introduction. So this is longer, but I feel like this is also like a very important history to highlight. Yes, definitely. So starting in 1824, the quote-unquote Bureau of Indian Affairs was founded. The BIA is a division of the federal government of the United States responsible for assimilation of Native peoples into mainstream, quote-unquote, American life, generally through the use of schools. After the majority of tribes were confined to reservations by the 1870s, the BIA's principal duty was to manage the Native population with the ultimate goal of, quote-unquote, assimilation. That is, educating the Native Americans so that they would gradually blend into the general American populace. Again, quote unquote. Right. Initially, the BIA contracted with missionary groups to establish and run day schools on the reservations, allotting certain reservations to each of the major Christian denominations. Okay. Native women in these schools were trained in the Euro-American domestic arts of sewing, cooking, and cleaning. So this is the education of Native American women. Right. Reading and writing, while part of the curriculum, were not emphasized. Christian doctrine stressing women's subordination to men in both the private and public spheres was an important curricular component. Native peoples often refused to abandon their religious beliefs and send their children to the schools. Ultimately, mission schools were not successful because missionaries had no authority to force Native children to attend. The BIA recognized the failure of the mission system and in the 1880s ceased contracting the schools to missionaries. In fact, many educators were concerned about the day schools on reservations, believing that by allowing Native children to live at home under their parents' influence, children were not sufficiently indoctrinated in Western Christian values. So again, this is from that book. So many educators were concerned. Who are these educators, (laughs) right? Right. Who are these people? This book isn't referring to the parents, who, like, what are the parents' concerns? Or, like, the Native American people's educators. Like, they're... <laughs> right, 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 right. So who are these educators that they're talking about? They're talking... She's ta- She must be talking about white educators who are of, like, a mainstream public schooling system. Yeah. But this is the kind of gaps where I'm, like, eh, trying to... <laughs> just trying to pull it apart. Critically read it. The BIA proposed separating children from parents to ensure their eventual assimilation as Americans. 
Thus, the BIA began to establish its own series of schools with particular emphasis on off-reservation boarding schools. Right. The majority of Native children who attended school between the 1880s and the 1930s attended such boarding schools. Mm -hmm. Although ostensibly secular educations, these schools always included some form of religious, usually Protestant, instruction. The BIA day and boarding schools all native knowledge was vigorously suppressed. Native children were not allowed to speak their own language, practice their native religion, wear traditional clothing, or create indigenous arts and crafts. The curriculum was highly gendered and segregated by sex. Native girls were typically trained to become domestic servants, although in the 1910s, a few schools provided courses for girls to become nurses, teachers, or secretaries. Mm. Native boys were trained as farmers, blacksmiths, and shoemakers. Mm. The schools were enormously unpopular with Native people, and many Native children were taken from their homes without parental consent. In 1928, so you see, we've jumped 100 years. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so in 1928... Great Depression era, right? Mm -hmm. The Miriam Report, a government-authorized study of the BIA, stated that its boarding schools suffered from chronic problems, including inadequate funding and staffing, overcrowding, poor facilities, bad nutrition, poor health care, and inappropriate curriculum. The report recommended closing some of these border schools, improving standards at others, and opening more day schools on the reservations, so day schools so students would be able to go home. Okay, yeah. During the next Four decades, most of these recommendations were ignored by the BIA. In 1969, the Kennedy Report, based on Senate investigations of the BIA, systematically led by Senator Robert Kennedy and concluded by Senator Edward Kennedy, found many of the same failings in the BIA school system. So it took 40 years for another report to come out. Okay. The main thrust of the Kennedy recommendations was to give Native people more control over their children's education. As a result of this report, a Native people's own political action for change. Many tribes established reservation schools funded by the BIA, but administered locally by tribe officials. Mm. Central components of these schools' curricula included tribal history and language instruction. But as you can see, it took 140 years to get here. And so that's why a lot of right. Native languages are not known. Not yeah. known. In 1978, the Tribally Controlled Community College Assistant Act was passed by Congress setting out guidelines for the creation of tribal community colleges funded in part by the BIA. In the mid-1990s, so when me and E were alive, there were 106 BIA elementary and secondary schools, 60 tribally controlled elementary and secondary schools, and 24 tribally controlled community colleges. Okay. I decided to spend a lot more time on that because I really, uh, this is a part of our, the United States educational history that I did not want to gloss over. I felt like it was very yeah. important to go into it. Yeah. So back to the chronology before. In 1831, the female literacy society formed by free black women for self-education one of the country's earliest study clubs one of the organization's leader was sarah maps douglas 
the Female Literary Society, also seen as the Female Literary Association, which I figured out after trying to... <laughs> like, I did a lot of research on Female Literary Association and nothing was really coming up. Mm. So I think it's actually society. Encouraged self-improvement through education for both the literate and illiterate and to both the free and enslaved. Okay. Education was to challenge white beliefs in the intellectual inferiority of African Americans. So I decided to go look a little bit more into Sarah Maps Douglas, who, as you can guess, was awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was born in 1806 and died in 1882. She was an African-American educator, abolitionist, writer, and public lecturer. She was also an artist and painted images on her written letters and maybe the first or earliest surviving examples of signed paintings by an African-American woman. In 1825, Douglas began teaching in Philadelphia at a school organized by her mother with James Fortin, the wealthy African-American sailmaker. Starting in 1833, she taught briefly at the Free African School for Girls before establishing her own school for African American girls. Okay. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah, she sounds great. <laughs> she was soon recognized as a talented teacher of science and the arts, at which she herself excelled and for holding her students to high standards. Okay. In 1838, the Philadelphia Female Anti Slavery Society took over the school retaining Douglas as the headmaster. In mm. 1854, the school merged with what is now Shinai State University, and Douglas became the head of the primary department, a position she held until her retirement in 1877. And the Shinai State University is a public co-educational, so it was for co-ed, right? So it was for men and women, and it was the nation's first historically black college, founded in 1837. Mm. So she was awesome. <laughs> and this book barely mentioned her. <laughs> Not to keep slamming this book. It was a no. good it was a good um skeleton. How do you spell uh Sinai? So Shayna, I didn't grow up I said it totally wrong, I think. Um it's C H E Y N E Y. Shayna. Okay. So in eighteen thirty-three Oberlin College was founded as the nation's first collegiate institution to accept women and black students. Okay. Um, from Oberlin's own website, they say that the college and community thrived on progressive causes and social justice. Among Oberlin's earliest graduates were women and black people. While Oberlin was co-ed from its founding in 1833, the college regularly admitted black students beginning in 1835 after trustee and abolitionist the Reverend John Keep cast the deciding vote to allow them entry. Okay. Women were not admitted to the baccalaureate program, which granted bachelor's degrees until 1837. Mm. Prior to that, they received diplomas from which was called the ladies course. Oh, okay. The college admitted its first group of women in 1837, so four years after its founding. Right. So a lot of the first women uh, didn't complete their degrees until 1841 and after. Mm -hmm. In 1844... George B. Vation became the first black student to earn a bachelor's degree from the college. And Mary Jane Patterson from 1862 was the first black woman to earn a degree from any American college. So I wonder when they talk about bachelor's degree, 
but there were, we already just talked about how there were historically black universities. I wonder if they didn't have degree granting power, if it were like these certificates or diplomas instead of degrees. Yeah, I would, I don't know, but that, I, I, you know. (laughs) We're we're learning. I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and that's also Oberlin's own website, so my guess is they'd be biased. Mm, true. So in the coming 15 years, more schools and colleges open. It was sort of a movement, right? Sort of a movement to be accepting women students. Right, yeah. Because you just need to start an institution that already accepts women students. Mm-hmm. As we'll talk about much later with Title IX, our favorite. Oh, boy. (laughs) It wasn't until Title IX was passed that you couldn't discriminate against gender. Yeah. So in 1860 to 1880, the kindergarten movement starts and grows in the United States. So kindergarten, sort of learning about early education. Also, early education is key to not forcing women to stay home with their children, you know, like being able to send children to an educational place. So in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation ends slavery and with it prohibitions on educating black people. Ends in quotation marks. Yes. Um, As we've talked about, there's still modern day slavery in our prison system. Yes. You can listen to that episode. So I found an article to talk about this. So I found it very interesting that when this quote unquote ending of slavery, it actually created more prohibitions on educating black people, right? Okay. So I found this article titled The Specter of Slavery, the Misallocation of Education to Black Americans and its Contribution to Declining American Economic Viability by Vince Rogers. So here's a quote. On the 1st of January, 1863, United States President Abraham Lincoln issued the executive order known as the Emancipation Proclamation. The proclamation asserted that all persons held as slaves within the Confederate States of America are and henceforth shall be free. Mm. In response, many states passed concrete legislation to create a separate and unequal educational system for black people. A dissimilar educational system for whites and freed slaves was initially intended to preserve a certain social order. However, it would also end up guaranteeing that whites and blacks would experience a relatively unequal level of prosperity into the foreseeable future. And that's from 2005. Yeah. I I guess it's, you know, highlighting the systemic racism. So it's like... Mm -hmm. Just like while the Emancipation Proclamation was important, the systemic racism continues on in institutions. Yeah. And in many other ways, but in from the context of what we're talking about. Um, in 1867, Howard University opens in Washington, D.C. for Black women and men. So it's another one of the historically black colleges and universities. So historically black colleges and universities are institutions of higher education in the United States that were established before the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 with the intention of primarily serving the African-American community. Right. This was because the overwhelming majority of predominantly white institutions of higher learning disqualified African-Americans from enrollment during segregation. So we're in the time period of segregation. Yes. In 1880, Spelman Seminary opens. Later, Spelman College will become a premier black women's college. Spelman Mm -hmm. College is the oldest liberal arts schools for African-American women in the United States. 
So this is from Wikipedia for Spelman College. It was a private liberal arts women's college in Atlanta. College mm-hmm. is part of the Atlanta University Center Academic Consortium in Atlanta. It founded in 1881 as the Atlanta Baptist Female Seminary. Spelman was the fourth historically black female institution of higher education to receive its collegiate charter in 1924. Okay. So I actually think that must be what it, um, t- we were talking about with the degree granting power, collegiate charter, right? Mm, okay, yeah. So because the two schools before this were strictly seminaries and the one other one was co-educational, Spelman College is America's oldest private historically black liberal arts college for women. In 1880, women are 80% of elementary school teachers worldwide. Mm-hmm. Oh, so in 1897, Catherine Goggin and Margot Haley create the Chicago Teachers Federation, one of the first teacher unions to advocate for benefits for em- elementary school teachers. Oh, hey. So the Chicago Teachers Federation, founded in 1897, to defend a recently enacted pension system, uh-huh. the Chicago Teachers Federation was one of the first teacher unions organized specifically to work for improved material benefits for teachers. Okay. So it was founded by two women. Cool. Throughout its history, um, CTF worked to secure pensions and tenure, to increase wages, to involve teachers in school decision making, and to promote teacher professionalism through organization. Mm. The CTF supported democracy in the schools and lobbied against centralization of power and administrative hands and other administrative reforms. Mm -hmm. Composed primarily of female grade and elementary teachers, CTF set an example of white-collar unionism that was emulated by teachers in other cities and women workers in general. CTF was also instrumental in founding numerous local and national teacher organizations and challenging male-dominated groups like the National Education Association or the NEA, which is definitely still something I get emails from. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. So in 1903, University of Chicago segregates women from its previously co-educational undergraduate program, signaling a backlash against women's students. 1903. So when the university was founded in 1892, the number of women who enrolled surprised many. Surprised many. See, this is the kind of like, who's who's the many at surprise? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can, so we can maybe guess. <laughs> it surprised many. Right. <laughs> maybe not the women who enrolled. The numbers of women eager for a Chicago education was close to that of men. And the early population was nearly equal. Okay. Despite the fact that Chicago had been co-educational since it opened its doors, a simmering controversy towards the women students boiled over shortly after the turn of the century, okay. 1903, signaling a sort of backlash that appeared on many campuses. Male students and faculty complained that the large numbers of women on campus were diminishing the academic and intellectual rigor of the institution. Uh-huh. In fact, the women were winning many of the academic awards and honors instead of men. In general, they were better students and more dedicated to the courses than many men, for whom the quote-unquote gentleman's C attitude towards grades often prevailed. <laughs> So funny. (laughs) The gentleman's see. An attitude I'm very familiar with. 
Creating a coordinate college or expelling all of the women was out of the question, so the faculty senate did the next best thing. This is wild. Oh my god. They arranged for coordinate courses that would split women from men. Classes were taught separately, with men students given a lecture, dismissed, and the same lecture repeated to the female students enrolled in the course. This arrangement, despite the logistical and time complications, continued for several years. So in 1908, Alpha Kappa Alpha, the first black women's sorority, opens at Howard University. Okay. In 1913, the Girl Scouts opens the first U.S. headquarters in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. which I wanted to note because I'm going to get into the Girl Scouts a lot more later on. Yes. So in 1920, women's suffrage was achieved. So in 1920, women were guaranteed the right to vote in all U.S. states by the 19th Amendment in the United States Constitution. In practice, the same restrictions that hindered the ability of poor or non-white men to vote now also applied to poor and non-white women. That is a quote from the Wikipedia article. Okay. For voting rights in the United States. (laughs) In 1935, the National Youth Administration created to serve young people with financial aid and dropout prevention programs. Mm -hmm. So black educator Mary McLeod Bethune helped head the office division for black students. Okay. So she was the daughter of formerly enslaved parents. In 1896, Mary McLeod Bethune uh, began teaching at Heinz Normal and Industrial Institute in Augusta, Georgia. Okay, so basically I thought Mary McLeod Bethune was really cool. Um, She also started multiple schools for um, black girls. Okay. Um, She also opened the first black hospital in Daytona, Florida. Okay. Because black people were being turned away from the hospital. Right. And I thought she was awesome. So that's Mary McLeod Bethune. You should look her up. Yeah, yeah. So in 1940, 73% of the school age population is in high school, which is awesome. Girls represent more than half of that. Mm. In the 1950s, women as percentage of college students, graduates, and of faculty drops due to post-war influx of men and resurgent ideology of women's domestic role. Right. So... That's the 50s. In 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision, which we've talked about many times, declares segregated schools illegal. Ironically, integration displaces many African-American teachers and school leaders. Okay. So I found this article titled Black Teachers, Black Students, Black Communities, and Brown. Perspectives and Insights from Experts, written by Milner and Howard from 2004. So findings in their research point to Black teacher demotion and Black teacher voicelessness as two of the consequences of the Brown decision for Black teachers. Okay. The connection between Black teachers, Black communities, and Black students all seem to have important implications for each other. Based on the evidence in this study, it is difficult to understand the impact of the Brown decision on Black teachers without considering and focusing on that of the Black communities and of Black students. Right. Many Black teachers were treated poorly after Brown, and their treatment resulted in a disconnection and imbalances in the Black community, and consequently, Black students seemed to suffer as a result of the treatment of Black teachers and the imbalances in the Black community. Okay. Now, um, I'm not sure if I I've mentioned it on this program before, but research I've did for my master's degree is that st- 
students learn better from teachers that they recognize that they that look like them mm -hmm. um so black students learn better from black teachers oftentimes so i thought this was a great complication to Brown versus Board of Education decision. Mm -hmm. um, so in 1970, several male institutions as well as established women's college become co-educational. So in the 1970s, schools start to willingly become co-educational. Okay. And in 1972, Title IX was passed to counter sex discrimination in federally funded educational programs. Title IX was inspired by the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education landmark discrimination case that gave new insight into the importance of equality in education. Title IX was patterned after Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in all federally assisted programs, such as schools, on the basis of race and color and national origin. So it's actually very interesting to me that Title IX was after yeah. and inspired by a Civil Rights Act of 1964. So In 1974, Women's Educational Equality Act provides financial assistance for efforts to ensure gender equality. Okay. So uh, funding for gender equality in schools. And here's the last date. Um, 1980, women become the majority of all college students at 51%. Okay. So I just wanted to talk about feminization. We've talked about this before, but something that I grapple with a lot is sort of the way that teaching mm -hmm. and like librarian positions are feminized it's sort of a feminized labor yes right yeah so this is from that same eisenman book okay so she is defining feminization mm -hmm. the feminization of teaching that is the transformation of teaching from a predominantly male to predominantly female occupation was a process set in motion early in the 18th century and accomplished by the late 19th century throughout the united states okay in new england where women first became the majority of teachers Women held 40% of all teaching positions before the Civil War and increased their presence to 80% of all teachers by 1880. Okay. Feminization, however, meant more than a statistical change. It also included modification of ideas concerning which gender could teach best. Yes. Formerly, conceptions of men's superior intellect and godliness mandated that only men could teach effectively. Right. By the mid-19th century, new formulations of the cult of domesticity stipulated that females were the superior instructors. Mm -hmm. Current explanations for the feminization of teaching range for those that employ neoclassical economic models of supply and demand to those that use arguments that posit a cultural connection between mothering and teaching. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to get into the um, sort of the neoclassical economic models of supply and demand because that's like not sure. Just going to be <laughs> frank, not too interesting to me. Probably but, not. <laughs> feminization occurred while teaching was becoming a profession and had profound impact upon the outcome. Right. So feminization impacted the outcome of that profession, which is teaching never developed into a profession that bestowed upon its members the autonomy and control found in the legal and medical professions. Mm -hmm. Rather, teaching began developing characteristics of a women's professions like 
nurses and social workers, teachers began to work under the control of bureaucracies, Mm -hmm. which denied them authority over policy. At the same time, school officials turned over teacher education, once a responsibility of private female academies, into state-controlled normal schools. Mm -hmm. I think that's wonderful, especially now when there's so many teacher strikes across this country trying to demand that the profession has more autonomy. Yeah. Has more they have more control over like like a respected profession. Yeah. So it's it's very timely. So now I just wanted to get into sort of these two I wanted to talk about Girls Rock Camp. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about Girl Scouts. Because that is where my teaching experience was started, right? It was started in these groups that sort of focused on basically non-male genders. And I'll get into that a little bit more. But um, And like the benefits of it, the benefits of having these marginalized gender identities all in one group and supporting each other. Mm -hmm. So I have a few things. I'm not going to get... Okay. The Girl Scouts, um, this is just from their website. Yeah. They talking about their program. At Girl Scouts, your girl will prepare for a lifetime of leadership, success, and adventure in a safe, no-limits place designed for and by girls. How? Through the Girl Scout leadership experience, a collection of engaging, challenging, and fun activities like earning badges, going on awesome trips, selling cookies, exploring science, getting outdoors, and doing community service projects. Mm -hmm. At Girl Scouts, she'll get to lead her own adventure, it's her world, and team up with other girls in an all-girl environment to choose the exciting hands-on activities that interest her most. Okay. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> I get so pumped up by it. The, the idea is to learn by doing. And a Girl Scouts, she'll do lots of it. Okay. So they talk a lot about science, technology, engineering, and math, the outdoors, life skills, and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. They talk about these skills that are often not considered um, something for girls, right? Yeah. And so it's all about leadership, right? So if you have a organization that's only girls, there's a lot more opportunities for leadership mm-hmm. for girls to take, which isn't necessarily true in other s- situations. So I wanted to pull a little bit from the history of Juliet Gordon Lowe. She's the one who started the Girl Scouts in 1912. So she played sports, they hiked, they swam, they camped. Um, They learned to read the world around them, for instance, by studying foreign languages and telling time by the stars. They shared a sense of curiosity and a belief that they could do anything. So that small gathering of girls from the very beginning in 1912 over a century ago, has grown into a global movement in which all girls can see themselves reflected. And that today includes 2.6 million Girl Scouts, 1.8 million girls and 800,000 adults in 92 countries and more than 50 million alums united across distances and decades by lifelong friendships, shared adventures, and the desire to do big things and make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I have a couple articles about Girl Scouts. So that's from their website. So again, clearly they will be biased. Um, but I pulled I pulled this article from 2010. It's titled Gender, Diversity, and Organizational Change, The Boy Scouts versus the Girl Scouts of America. Mm-hmm. It was written by Barbara Arnell. Just so you know, the Girl Scouts of America has nothing to do with the Boy Scouts. They're very, very different organizations. Yeah, I was going to say, because we just talked about the Boy Scouts (laughs) 
last time. I did, yeah. I did talk about the Boy Scouts briefly last time. I did. So, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts enrollment dropped dramatically in the 70s. Boy Scouts continues to this day to decline, while Girl Scouts is reaching record numbers. So this article is sort of talking about why, and she posits that it's because the Girl Scouts has adapted to the changes of the civil rights era. Mm. So the civil rights era sort of rejected these traditionalist norms. And to quote, while the Boy Scouts rejects such changes... In order to defend traditional values, the Girl Scouts, which established a commitment to challenging gender norms from its birth, embraces the new values and adapts virtually every aspect of its organizational identity to this new generation. As young people see themselves reflected back in the values endorsed by the Girl Scouts, its membership resurges while the Boy Scouts continues to decline. And the story of the Girl Scouts is an objective lesson on how even traditional organizations can flourish if they are willing to open themselves up. In so doing, they enhance their own missions and at the same time contribute to the enhancement of democratic politics. So I found another article just to sort of talking about the kind of programming that the previous author was discussing, right? So this is an article from 2006 by Darlene Grant. PhD. Mm. Resilience of Girls with Incarcerated Mothers. Okay. The Impact of Girl Scouts. So the purpose of this article is to present evaluations findings on the impact of the Girl Scouts Beyond Bars program focused on helping girls develop their full individual potential within the context of mother-daughter relationships compromised by maternal incarceration. Okay. So the Girl Scouts Beyond Bars program originated in collaboration with the National Institute of Justice in 1992 at the Maryland Correctional Institute for Women in Jessup. Okay. It met with success and in 2003, Girl Scouts of the U.S. was awarded $1.8 million from the U.S. Department of Justice, the DOJ, funding to expand programs for at-risk girls, continuing Girl Scouts Beyond Bars. Today, Girl Scouts of the USA it reports an outreach effort to thousands of girls considering at-risk, and they are served in homeless shelters, public housing facilities, and women's jail and prison facilities. Mm. I was actually a part of this. I wasn't a Girl Scout growing up, but I was a Girl Scout leader, not specifically with the Girl Scouts Beyond Bars program, but as part of the quote-unquote at-risk institutions. So a lot of the program that Girl Scouts is trying to do is bring Girl Scouts to communities that wouldn't otherwise be able to have them a lot of the times, especially um, because most Girl Scouts programs are volunteer run. Yes. But if there isn't a mother at home, if she's incarcerated or if she's working often and doesn't have free time to volunteer, volunteering can oftentimes be a privilege. Yes. So Girl Scouts um, hires people. So I was actually hired to be a Girl Scout troop leader. I led multiple troops throughout the week. So I would go into different elementary schools Mm -hmm. um, and work with the girls there. So this is the kind of program that they were funding and the kind of program that I was a part of. Oh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) So this specific program, which I hadn't heard of, there's 40 of them, Girl Scouts Beyond Bars. So they sort of focus on having mother-daughter troop meetings in correctional facilities. Okay. So they have traditional in-community troop meetings. They also have in-prison enrichment activities for incarcerated mothers and support and connection of guardians with community and social services. So the idea is to help recidivism rates, to help keep those bonds, those maternal bonds, even though um, these women are incarcerated 
incarcerated with their children. And it just se- feels very, very, very positive. Um, and I just think it's great. Um, so the last organization I wanted to talk about was the Girls Camp Alliance. Mm-hmm. So this is their talk. They're talking about the membership. So the Girls Rock Camp Alliance, if you haven't heard of mm-hmm. it, it is an international coalition of organizations whose shared missions is to empower girls and women using the tools of music and arts education to foster community and build power. Build power. <laughs> so great. Yeah. <laughs> um, There are currently over 90 full member organizations and the Girls Rock Camp Alliance itself is a nonprofit, is led and shaped entirely by its members. Mm -hmm. Becoming a member aligns your program with a network of rock camps and community projects that share similar values and goals. It is not a franchise organization or an organization that has one model of rock camps for other programs. So it's really not like the Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts is a franchise, right? You get a Girl Scouts, our troops, sort of abide by certain rules. Mm -hmm. They all abide by certain badges. The Girls Rock Camp Alliance are all separate organizations that work independently and they all the members come together in sort of like an annual conference and they talk about their programs. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. And they're across many different countries. Mm -hmm. It's not just isolated to the United States. But this is brand new. They just published this in 2018 and this is sort of how I wanted to end this. This is their new points of unity. Okay. The Girls Rock Camp Alliance is a movement made up of organizations across the world all working from different backgrounds and contexts towards an intersectional feminist future. Mm-hmm. We unite under these points. And I want I'm going to say these points and I want you to think about gender. Right. We believe that youth are inherently powerful. We work to support youth leadership in our programs and communities. Our work is a direct attempt to amplify voices that have otherwise been told to be silent. Music, art, and creative expression are our tools in building a loud, celebratory, and formidable movement. We do not use these tools by accident. We use them because music and creative expression are accessible, community-based, collaborative, and political. Our work is political. We work to dismantle intersecting systems of oppression and acknowledge that they do not affect us all equally. Our work must be led and built by those whose impacted systemic oppression and colonizations. Gender is fluid, expansive, and cannot be contained within a binary. Trans and gender non-conforming people have always been and always will be an integral part of our movement. Our work must center those who experience marginalization because of their gender identity and expression. In order for movement to be effective, it must be physically, financially, and linguistically accessible. We strive to make sure that those who wish to do this work have what they need to thrive. Though we are often told otherwise, we believe there is room for us all to be leaders. We do not fear scarcity and believe in abundance. Our work benefits from sharing power and leadership within our movement. Our work must be adaptable and willing to shift. We are committed to continually remaking ourselves and boldly engaging the discomfort of change and transition. We are constantly learning how to challenge systemic oppression and how to love each other better. We are not alone and our work transcends borders. Our collective power is grounded in our membership and the communities our members come from and work with. We can hear each other across oceans and the landscapes we call home and we work in solidarity 
solidarity with each other and other liberation movements. Authentic relationship building is the work. We are better equipped to support and fight for our youth when we care for and value one another. We must hold ourselves and each other accountable. There is power and transformation, forgiveness and healing. We believe that we can teach each other and learn together. We believe that joy is a revolutionary force. Hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for reading that. I volunteered with Girls Rock before. I think they are an amazing organization. I think when they say girls, they mean marginalized gender. Right. They're starting to reconsider the name Girls Rock because camps can choose their own names. A lot of camps are coming up with different names. Okay. I like that the focus isn't on necessarily rock and roll. They also have many types of music genres mm -hmm. that aren't, uh, I don't know, <laughs> they just have many different music genres available to students, sort of recognizing that not everyone's cultural backgrounds is one that has rock and roll in it. But it's also a very punk movement. Mm -hmm. A lot of punks, a lot of Riot Girls, like E was talking about, now are teaching instruments and teaching music to these students at these camps who are also forming bands very informed by riot girl very informed by girl punk yes and that's how i wanted to end my segment um just sort of this message of empowerment this message of transformation and change and why creative expression and is political and very important to this type of work yeah no i think it is really important and it does echo really nicely the stuff i was talking about with the girl scenes so it's cool thank you yeah thank you thank you <laughs> All right. So now it's time for our segment, Letters to the Editor, where we read either things that you've sent us or told us about, or um, we talk about other sources um, from previous episodes that we want to discuss. So this person wants to be anonymous, and they write to us. I'm a big fan of your show. I just listened to episode 16 and wanted to thank you for it. I worked with a project-based learning school that practiced restorative justice. Um, so episode 16 is our incarceration episode, yes, right? Yes, I believe so. I worked in a project-based learning school that practiced restorative justice and have been thinking about those practices again lately mm -hmm. because of the latest episode of Student Steven Universe. Yes. But I am now a children's librarian and work in the huge library with a security guard station at the entrance. Theoretically, our guards are there to keep children and families safe, right? That's what policemen are supposed to mm -hmm. be doing. We have a policy that prohibits adults from spending time in the space when they are unintended by a child in accordance with the state's sex offender law. However, our guards, while wonderful people who work very well with children, sometimes play that role of a police officer in a space. Recently, one of our guards went out of their way to talk to a pair of Latinx middle schoolers who were being a bit loud. Our space is loud. We're separated from the rest of the library and don't have to be quiet. And it was super unnecessary. And I didn't speak up about it because, well, complacency. Mm. Listening to your show, I realized... I've become more complacent in our space because I'm so comfortable with our guards. At my previous branch, I always tried to intervene and keep the interactions between the guards and the kids limited because they can take on a scary policing tone, even when those interactions were simply about noise. I appreciated all the food for thought and the reminder that we can be part of the pipeline. Mm. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I think it's something that we all um, have to be continually aware yes. of. 
is our place in these institutions and our place in complacency with these systems. So thank you for sharing with us. It's it's always, it's always good to um, re-examine. Yeah. That also makes me think, um, I didn't say that on, say this specifically on the episode, but just thinking about my fellow graduate students and TAs who teach Mm -hmm. to Pay attention to campus police and where they are, because that's also an instance where you can intervene if you are able to. Yeah. And um, the ways in which they are surveilling students in a space that's supposed to be for students, for learning, for kids. Yes. I especially love um, this commentary on libraries. Yeah. Because libraries are such an important community space. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, They also wanted to shout out the Transformative uh, Justice Law Project and specifically their Hidden Expressions zine series. The TJLP serves the incarcerated transgender community in Illinois and Hidden Expressions collects work by trans people who are currently incarcerated. And so, and they also gave us a link to download the zine for free. So that'll definitely be in our show notes. Yes. They also share some more um, zine libraries. The DePaul University has a zine library that sends zines to prisoners, which is rad. Yeah. Rad. Thank you so much for your letter. And thank you so much for sharing the um, information. I do I do think we did talk about um, sharing information because uh, the way that prisons system works and the way incarceration works is they try to make it so people are shut off from the outside world when they're on the inside and so the more and more resources we share with each other um the more access um those people have to the outside world so thank you so much yeah thank you so much all right so i wanted to say thank you to the downtown boys um for their song wave of history um, it's our intro to outro. You can get it off their album, Full Communism. It's on their band camp. Uh, link in our show notes. You can uh, see our show notes on uh, drawingadialogue.com. And also check out, while you're there, uh, Comic Art Ed, which is Kathy's uh, education website, which hosts us. Um, Thank you. Of course. Uh, you can also follow the, you can email us if you want to email us things, uh, communications, dialogue, so forth at, uh, it's drawing a dialogue at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or tweet at us at draw a dialogue. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kathy G. John, C-A-T-H-Y-G-J-O-H-N. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ehecha, E-H-E-T-J-A. And you can order my book, The Breakaways, at thebreakawayscomic.com. Um, so, what are you reading, E? What am I reading? I've mostly just been reading for class classic <laughs> so i mean i've re- i read um miss dalloway the other week oh i know what i can say um one of the things i had to read for a cl- for uh, my i'm taking a class on uh modernist pedagogy and we read a lot of mina loy's poetry Ooh. and i wasn't uh i am familiar only with really like the fine art side of modernism i'm not really 
I don't really know much about the literature, so it's like this, a lot of this is new for me. Um, so I hadn't read anything by Mina Loy before, but I love her a lot now. She's very good. Uh, There's some really good female modernist poets. Yeah, I mean, we read like Stein, <laughs> like we read like The good. Baroness. It's all like uh, suffrage movement era stuff. So like some of the poems can get really... Uh... <laughs> uh racy <laughs> yes they are um but and mina loy also wrote a really good feminist manifesto that you can find online that i'm very fond of cool yeah seems appropriate for the episode absolutely <laughs> all right uh what are you reading kathy so i have been reading i mentioned it last episode in our masculinity episode but i just got in a columbine by dave cullen so it sort of goes into, I'm over halfway done, um, it goes into the reporting of Columbine and of the massacre at Columbine and um, sort of goes into the criminal, um, I guess it's just sort of like a true crime book. Right. So if you are looking for more information and more perspective on school shootings, because I know it's something that I talk about a lot, but it's something I want to always be researching because it's pertinent as an educator and as youth in America, because we do need to get rid of guns. Um, it was also uh, the one year anniversary of Parkland recently in uh, February 14th. Mm -hmm. So it's a conversation to have. So if you're looking for more information or if it like really uh, scares you and you want to learn more concrete facts about it, I would really recommend this book by Dave Cullen. Yeah, no, I think that's um, a really thing. Uh, I don't know what I was going to say. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's like just, um, it's almost like it's scarier if you don't know, right. inf like, facts, you know, right, and like right. learning more and more facts about it. Just, I guess that also is me as a scholar. I just get invigorated by facts and wanting to know how we can enact change has a lot to do with knowing the truth of and contexts of events. So mm, um, yeah. I hope that made sense. No, it does. I wish I had some other happier thing that I read that I could go out on, but that's really all I've been reading. So thank you so much, E. Yes. Um, I'm Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Thank you so much for listening and for well to our Trepid Volunteers. Bye.